This is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to helping engineers succeed in work and life. The show is hosted by engineering enthusiast Anthony Fasano and Chris Knutson. Both are professional engineers who found success early in their careers and now work together to help other engineers do the same. Now it's showtime. This is Chris Knutson, and this is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, the show for engineers who want to succeed in both work and life. I trust this finds you doing well wherever you are and whatever project you're working on. The episode finds me doing great. And in this episode, it's going to be focused on the topic of change management, or what I'm really going to call change leadership, because as you'll discover as the discussion unfolds with today's guest, it takes effective leadership to prepare for and navigate change. And if there's anything that's a certainty in life or in the engineering business, it's going to be change. And today's guest, Paul Gibbons, is an expert in change management. A consultant, thought leader on the topic, adjunct professor, and author, he's the right person to be hearing about change management from, and I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to discuss the topic with him and provide you with some very actionable steps for implementing change management or change leadership in the organization you work for today or the projects you're currently leading or are going to be leading. But before we get into the main segment, I want to take a moment to recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. If you're thinking about taking the FE, PE, or SE exam, I recommend that you check out PPI, the leader in engineering exam prep. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of the podcast. Use promo code COACH at ppi2pass.com forward slash coach. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com slash coach, and use promo code COACH for a 20% discount. All right, now I want to give a quote. Related to today's topic, before we jump into the show, it's going to help us slide right on in there. And if you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. And that comes from Maya Angelou. And with that, I give you the one, the only, Mr. Paul Gibbons. Now it's time for the main segment of our show today. And today I have with me Paul Gibbons, who began his career by earning a degree in biochemistry and followed that with a year working toward a master's in finance. At just 20, he moved to London as a quant derivatives trader, working at Solomon Brothers, Morgan Stanley, and First Boston, and becoming head of money market sales and trading for the world's third largest bank. Gibbons explored neuroscience for several years through doctoral studies, but business called him back, and he joined PwC first as a strategist and expert on derivatives, advising banks after the 1990s trading disasters, such as bearings and long-term capital. He then joined PwC's Strategy, Innovation, and Change Think Tank, helping develop its methodologies in change management, innovation, and corporate transformation, running board-level leadership development programs, and leading the change management side of a billion-dollar change program. Gibbons then founded his own firm, Future Considerations, an award-winning European leadership consulting boutique. After selling first considerations, he joined the University of Wisconsin as a lecturer, while continuing to coach senior executives and change worldwide. He's appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, the Guardian, and the Times. And in 2008, CEO Magazine named him one of the two CEO super coaches. He recently published a short workbook on personal change called Reboot Your Life, a 12-day program for ending stress, realizing your goals, and becoming more productive. You can find the link for that in today's show notes. Go to engineeringcareercoach.com and you'll be able to access all that great information. And Paul, glad to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's great to be with the uh, great to be with you, and uh, great to be talking to engineers. Very near, near and dear to my heart. 
So one of the one of the first questions that might come into one of our listeners' minds is, "Hey, we've got this the you know a super coach that's on the uh, <laughs> that's on the call today, who has a background in, in finance and biochemistry, but really a lot in finance. And why would you know why would we we be bringing someone like yourself onto the show? And and I'll just I'll quickly answer that one, and that is is because of your expertise in change management." And the project management side of the business, which every engineer is going to have to interact with and, and deal with. If they haven't already done so in their career, they're going to do it. And that is the main reason why Paul is on today's show is to lead us through. Because if we're going to talk with someone about change management, we might as well bring an expert on the show. And Paul, again, I'm, I'm very grateful to have you on the show with me. So I'm going to just jump right into the questions here because this is a, a topic that probably more junior engineers may not have a lot of interaction with or a lot of experience with, but more senior engineers certainly are going to understand and have dealt with change management before. So why is change management something that that an engineering firm, engineering firm owner, or just an engineering leader in themselves needs to address? I have a lot of love for the engineering pr- profession. You know, I might, there was a, an alternative universe I, uh, I, I went into. I became a, probably a software engineer or one of the software engineering. And so one of the worldviews I grew up with is uh, that uh, people in businesses ought, ought to be rational. They ought to act uh, in accordance with the evidence and in accordance with reason and in accordance with expertise. And so I, when I became a consultant in 1993, I took my uh, expertise into uh, Barclays Bank as uh, the uh, second largest bank in England at the time. And Barclays Bank was uh, running a big derivatives operation that was making heaps of money, but also taking on masses of risk. And so I and a team of consultants from around the world, we went to work with Barclays to write them a set of recommendations for how to manage risk. Uh, this was 12 volumes long, this set of recommendations. This is not a, a light read. And it covered every aspect of risk management. So I think at the time, immodestly, that our firm was the best in the world at financial risk management and advising banks. We presented our $4 million worth of findings, that's four with six zeros after it, worth of uh, recommendations to the board, to the executive team, to the business unit heads, to team leaders throughout the whole organization. And so the good news was they loved our recommendations. They thought the expertise and what we were saying about risk management was um, absolutely spot on. Then, to my incredible disappointment, they did absolutely nothing with it. And so from a person who is in love, in a sense, with the rationality, with human reason, with acting in accordance with expertise and evidence, to have them love something as much as they loved it and then do nothing at all with it, I thought, from my point of view, it was a, was a tragedy. So my, my question as an early idealistic consultant was, what in the heck besides expertise and reasons and rationality and analysis gets organizations to change. And so also, I mean, there's a personal backdrop. I grew up in the 60s and 70s and started smoking as a young man. I had a little uh, time as a cancer researcher in when I was still in college or just finishing college in 1980. And I used to work with uh, one of the carcinogens from cigarette smoke. We used to administer this to mice and then watch them get cancer and study the effects of the carcinogen on the cancers, et cetera, et cetera. And I used to, uh, during the uh, breaks, during my time in the lab, I used to go out and smoke uh, a couple of Marlboro. And I smoked a pack of Marlboro Red a day while I was doing cancer research on cigarettes. <laughs> and so these two events, the events at Barclays, where rationality and reasons and expertise were you know, really, really liked and really, really, in a sense, ignored behaviorally, and also the own gap between my own 
rationality and my own behaviors to me sparked an interest, which is why in about 1995, I sort of pivoted my career and became a, a change management specialist. So that's why I think it's important is because reasons and expertise do not by themselves add up to a successful change. And engineers, we are rational that we, as we are, you know, we'd like to think that that was true um, and it doesn't and it's not true. And, uh, and so there's much more to the change management equation than just reasons and expertise. How's that? Not too long an answer, I hope. Not at all, and I think it's a, I think it's great with the uh, with the example that you provided. What it makes me think through, Paul, is that as you know, engineers get involved with projects by and large to take either a, a new idea to fruition, you know, essentially taking something that never existed before and creating something new, or trying to address and fix a problem that currently exists. And if we want to take a civil engineering example, it could be a uh, you know, it could be something as as, uh, as simple or maybe even complex as a uh, as traffic flow issue to something maybe even more complex than as is some major major environmental program or environmental cleanup program that's going on. But essentially, there's change that's involved with that. And I think your example that you brought up, along with the you know essentially the dichotomy between the cancer research you were doing and your own actions, really identifies you know potentially a lot of the a lot of the change issues that we all can run into in a lot of the work that we do. What would you say to an engineer who's looking at, let's say, a, a project that's going to affect a community where you, where maybe they're running into the sort of the same type of situation that you experienced with Barclays and the banking example that you provided or your own personal example where there's, you know, there's a known need to change, there's identified steps to go that route, yet the change doesn't occur? Well, one of the things, uh, this is skipping to some remarks I wanted to make at the end. So you use the word stakeholders, or if you haven't, uh, if you didn't use it exactly, you were referring to stakeholders. So most of the time when I see change, take a dirt road, if you want, the change train derail, it's because stakeholders have been ignored. And it's often in a world where we like to think of people as rational. We think that people, if you give them a good enough reason, if you say, look, here's the business case, here's the ROI, here are the benefits that people are going to comply. And the fact of the matter is they, they don't. First of all, the world may look different to them. What looks different to a CEO where he might be interested in shareholder value, he might be interested in return on assets, return on investment, might look different to a guy on the shop floor who's going to change behavior. So stakeholders is the ABCs of change management. And the second ABC of change management, if you will, is around behaviors. And what we see in all over the world, climate change behaviors, uh, we see it around obesity behaviors. We see time and time again, a huge volume of scientific information and evidence and a lack of behavioral change, behavioral compliance. And this is a problem that affects society, and our ability to govern ourselves as a world. It affects businesses and their ability to execute strategies and affects individuals in a chance to live their lives in accordance with what reasons would dictate. So stakeholders is the A of the ABCs and the B of the uh, ABCs is, um, you could call it behavioral change. And so I think today we often talk about getting hearts and minds aligned with the change. I say that that's wholly insufficient, that what people like or what people feel comfortable with is not sufficient to getting a change to happen. And I think that's something that your engineers need to pay attention to, those two factors. So do you think, and this is kind of a follow-up to that one, do you think this is, it really, this really sort of moves us into this, into an influence area? Like how does one influence 
stakeholders to enact this behavioral change. I guess what I'm trying to maybe parse apart is at some point, one point or another, we're going to run into stakeholders who are going to be completely unwilling to do a behavioral change. And it could could even be ourselves associated with some kind of a change that we want to make in our own life. Sure. So there's this need to have to move the stakeholder or stakeholders from where they are now, point A, to point whatever point it is that we want them to be moved to. And so, you know, successful change management, essentially, it's, as you mentioned, it's kind of winning hearts and minds, but it's, it's not sufficient. It's really, in my mind, it's almost more influence, or is there more to it? I mean, we, we live in a world today, I mean, we used to live in a world uh, a long time ago when it was the right of management, in a sense, to use coercion. Uh, you could threaten to get rid of people, or if you didn't do that, you could uh, arrange carrots and sticks, rewards. Those are behavioral strategies. You say we want certain behaviors, and either we either use threat, coercion, say if you don't align behaviorally, there'll be consequences, or we use rewards. So there'll be certain uh, rewards and recognition. And uh, We've left that world behind, and I think for good reasons. One, those, those strategies don't work. Rewards don't work as cleanly and uh, as rationally as we like. And coercion uh, may produce short-term results, but it damages things we care about, such as engagement and retention of employees. And we're not always able, we don't always have enough power to coerce stakeholders. We don't always have the ability to influence their rewards. So that's the if you want the really old school. And then in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, we think, oh, well, we have to change hearts and minds. And that too is much more difficult than, than we'd like it to be. I mean, there's research today on something called the backfire effect, where people who are very committed to an ideological point of view, their resistance is strengthened by the provision of facts. So let me say that again. Their resistance is strengthened by the provision of fact. And that, again, I'll use a political example, is, applies to climate change, particularly as someone who's ideologically opposed to reducing carbon emissions. If you provide them with, with facts, they will strengthen their resistance. Okay, so now we have an interesting problem with influencing. It's not as straightforward as we thought. So we can't coerce them. Carrots and sticks are insufficient. We want to change hearts and minds. Changing hearts and minds is difficult. But even once you've changed hearts and minds... As we all know from being human beings, is even when we're, our hearts and minds are aligned, either when we want to lose weight and we have good reasons to lose weight, behaviors won't follow. So what's the answer? And this is one of the exciting things that's happened in the last 20 or 25 years is there are a number of different behavioral strategies. So that sounds like the old world, you know, tailor scientific management, coerce people, carrots and sticks world. But you want to leave people with liberty to choose because it's morally correct and more more effective, but you still want to require behavioral change. So here's the question. How do you do that? How do you short circuit the need for influence, the need to change hearts and minds? And so some of the very interesting things that are done, one area is called choice architecture, which is something that was first introduced in a book of about 2005 which I would recommend to your readers. The book's called Nudge by a couple of professors from the University of Chicago. And it suggests a number of strategies that you can use, which leave people with the liberty to choose what they want to do. However, steer their behaviors in a way that will be beneficial to them or beneficial to the organization. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I'm going to ask you to parse this one apart because this is the first time I've heard of it. And this is a very interesting aspect that I've not heard of before. Let me say a bit more. So 
One of the, the examples, that book opens with an example of people being in a cafeteria and uh, you have a bunch of high school students in the cafeteria, you can organize the presentation of what they purchase in ways that will maximize profitability. So you put the high margin stuff in the front and within easy reach of their hands, all the cakes and the goodies, so they see them when they first come in, that you would be organizing their choices, the choice architecture, in a way that maximizes profitability. Or you could organize their choices so it maximizes health as an outcome. And so you can organize the greens and the vegetables and the healthier foods at the end and kind of stick the desserts and the treats up at the back. And so that's uh, an example, uh, I think an important example of being able to, they're still at liberty to choose. However, their behaviors are guided in a way which, you know, is beneficial to them. And so in a very interesting experiment with 401ks, 401ks in the United States uh, for your international listeners is the way people save for retirement. And frequently companies will match the employee's contribution. So in a sense, they're getting free money if they subscribe to one of these 401k programs. However, what they found was that more than half of the workers would ignore this and not uh, subscribe to the 401k. So that's an interesting thing, right? They're being given free money, so it's not rational. So the question is for an organization is, and it's an important question for society, is how do you get people to save enough for retirement? so they're not dependent on the state? It's a huge question, and it's a question for businesses and for society. And so they did an experiment. They ran an influencing-type arrangement. So this is the hearts and minds that we've been talking about. For experts, they had experts on retirement and experts on tax planning and experts on saving, and they educated people as to why they should be saving for their retirement and getting this free money from the organization, this match of their contributions. And that produced a 15% increase in take-up. Well, that's something, right? They used this choice architecture method. And, you know, it sounds very simple when I say it, but the difference is between opt-in and opt-out. So instead of offering people a huge number of choices to which they had to opt-in, they offered them a very small number of choices and they had to opt-out. Take-up increased by 90%. So the latter is a behavioral strategy. It didn't depend on them thinking it was a good idea. They just made it easy for them to choose the correct behavior. Those are two examples of choice architecture. I hope those are interesting and useful to you. Very interesting. It's a, I've, I put, definitely will put the book nudge in the, uh, in the show notes for this, and I've, I've added, I'm going to be adding it into my reading list because this is, this is a very interesting topic. So I want to kind of build off of this a little bit because a lot of this sounds to me like it's really, you know, we talk about change management, use the, the terminology change management, which I think is something that a lot of people have, have heard before. Maybe many of the listeners have heard those words, change management. But to me, what we're talking about is really more of along the lines of change leadership. You know, management is what it is. Leadership is sort of leading people towards the direction that you want them to go or leading a concept or an issue towards you want it to go. How do you feel about that? Does that sound about what, kind of what you're talking about here? And what are some of the characteristics that might be associated with a change leadership mindset and what that looks like? That's a good question. Yeah. So when I began in change management, it was kind of a new area. Change management was, if you want, invented in the late 80s, 90s, or at least popularized in the late 80s and 90s. And Change management was a group of specialists working for consulting firms or as internal consultants who were basically there to get people aligned with the change. That was our job. There were project managers who managed the tasks, the deliverables, the budget, and the quality. The change managers were there to bring people along. 
And so that's the model, and that model persists to this day. It's slightly going out of fashion, but that's still the model, is the change management is a guy who's not a manager inside the organization, but someone who's outside, in a sense, the organization, outside the mainstream management, either an internal consultant or an external consultant who helps bring people along. So my opinion about that is that it's a dysfunctional way of running change. And that if you had organizations, imagine this, where you had fantastic change leadership at every level, then this fantastic change leader would automatically be sharing the vision. He would be providing a big picture context so the change made sense to people. He'd be resolving internal conflicts between departments or between individuals. He'd be supporting people through the difficulty of the change transition, either helping them build skills or with the emotional side of, of the change. They'd understand the sources of the resistance to change and they'd work with, that's in a sense, my sense of a job of a leader is to bring their piece of the organization along with the big picture. That's, you know, leadership in the middle of an organization looks like that. You're not moving the whole organization, but you're moving your part of the organization. You're accountable for delivering the change there. Now, if someone, people were skilled at that, you wouldn't need specialists. You wouldn't need management consultants. You wouldn't need external change expertise. So what we call change management can be replaced by change-capable leaders who are, you know, great at getting an organization aligned with a change. And so in my opinion, change management is often a Band-Aid which shores up insufficient change leadership. And so we need to move away from a change management mindset to a change leadership mindset. Hey, everyone. We've been running the Engineering Mastermind for several years now, and during this time, we've been helping engineers from all backgrounds develop confidence on communications, salary negotiations, dealing with difficult employees or bosses, or making major career decisions like which job offer to pursue or what education to go after next, and a lot more. And this is taking place in an online forum with over 100 other motivated engineers who have been there, done that. They have the experience and the insight, and more importantly, they share that with you to help you in making career and life forwarding decisions. This isn't just mentoring, and it isn't just coaching. It's the best of both, wrapped up into a members-only community that focuses on solving your career and lifestyle design challenges from an engineer's perspective. If you're interested in learning more or simply want to join the team, head over to engineeringcareercoach.com forward slash mastermind. That's engineeringcareercoach.com forward slash mastermind and take a step towards creating the engineering career and lifestyle you desire. Now back to the show. All right, Paul, that was, uh, that's, that's great input. So um, just ask, this is maybe kind of sort of segueing ourselves in here into a different area, but what, it kind of building off what we've been talking about, what, what are three actions that organization leadership or just an engineering leader in and of themselves might want to implement early on in a change program or really any project that they're working that's likely to increase success? Well, for senior leaders, I mean, the first, uh, the answer to the first question for, for the people who are the strategists are think carefully about your, the way you're defining the problem. I and mean, frequently, the way you define a problem is the problem. And as Einstein said, uh, if he had 60 minutes to save the world, he'd spend 55 minutes thinking about how to do it and five minutes trying to do it. So if you act too quickly, if you're not sufficiently deliberate in considering root causes when you do strategy work, you end up fixing symptoms. And a lot of the waste of money I see in organizations is trying to fix symptoms rather than dealing with root causes. So that's one thing. I think also for, at the senior level, senior leaders have to be honest with themselves about their capability 
about previous failures, about overruns, about unintended consequences for change. They need to be honest about their capability to get change to happen, particularly the human side of change. And uh, inside that humility, they need to be thinking about how they build change capability or what I call change agility. So those are for the senior level. For the people who do the heavy lifting on the inside, if you want, of an organization, I think one of the critical features is to think early about stakeholders, very early. So even at at the level of strategy formulation, when the project is still taking shape, is begin to think then about who's going to be involved and begin to evolve them early on, even while ideas are still taking shape. And so uh, and one of the biggest mistakes I've seen is, one, ignoring stakeholders, so pretending that they're not really have too deep an interest in this and they'll be just fine, or assuming that rationality will win the day with stakeholders that could be affected emotionally, or it's paying insufficient early attention to stakeholders and how we get them to participate. So I think I gave you five rather than three, but I hope that's a shot. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. You know, more is always good, right? Especially on this topic. So, I mean, this, this really plays into a lot of what we've been talking about and what you've been covering for us, which is change management you know, being very closely linked to, uh, to human behavior. So kind of building off of building off of this you know, discussion set that we've been really having about, about these two topics of change, again, change management and human behavior, how can an engineer that's charged with implementing a, a change project use this, you know, kind of use the knowledge of change management, the basics that you just unpacked for us with the understanding of some of these human behavior aspects to handle the resistance that they're going to be facing when they come into these, you know, any kind of a change environment that they're, that they're dealing with? So first of all, I mean, I think, I think I've said it, but I mean, it's so important, it bears repeating, is, is that involving people early. There's an idea that, a paradigm, if you want, that the way you get change to happen is the people at the top of the organization uh, come up with the answers, and then they try and persuade the rest of the organization to follow them. And the reason that's dysfunctional is, first of all, you create a very much more difficult behavioral and influencing change job when they're involved late. So involving people early makes them feel, in a sense, that they're part of the solution, and it gets, Bill starts to build engagement at the beginning of the project rather than, you know, I've often been called into projects when literally people are walking out the doors or downing tools and they've decided they needed a change management guy to come in and help to stem some of the blood loss. So that's not the way you want to run a business. And so that's one thing for sure is uh, early engagement. And the second thing is, is think about how the change looks from their point of view. It doesn't look the same at the top of the organization at the bottom. And yet senior leaders, sometimes live in a world where everybody should see the world their ways. And so there's a certain an empathy, an understanding that the needs and wants and desire and vision of people lower down in the organization are one, essential to your success and therefore important to your success. But they're also important in their own right, how people respond to change. So that's certainly two, I think, guidelines for the way we need to think about things. I kind of see that that a lot of the uh, you know a lot of change management is also kind of linked to how people think about risk and because I mean part of this is it, it just from from my own experience is that is that risk is a, is an often misunderstood uh, a concept I mean first off there's there's both negative and positive risks but people have a tendency to really not think about risk on the front end of a project or really even even personal aspects in their lives so what are some of the systemic flaws that you understand exist in how humans think about risk 
how people think about risk. And uh, and then maybe kind of a follow-on question, that, how does this affect mindsets about change management? One of the uh, things that we're all very skilled at doing, uh, all of your project managers that follow you and all of the engineers who follow you, is we're pretty good at developing risk registers. I mean, every project today is kind of standard operating practice. I'd be very surprised to walk in and find a project without a risk register. More often, I'll find them without a stakeholder map, which is the other you know, critical ABC tool, is a map of actually who's affected by it and how they're affected and what we're going to do about how they're going to affect it by it. So those are two tools. But we always find risk registers, but it's worth, worth remembering that the risk register is based on humans' subjective assessment of risk. And we are not very good at thinking in terms of probabilities. So that's some first, the first systematic flaw in about humans think about risk is our brains are very, very good at some things, but we are not really naturally equipped to think about a probabilistic universe. And so what does that lead to? So that leads to when risks are small, we leads to ignoring small risks. And you may think to yourself, well, of course, we ignore the small risks and focus on the major risks. Frequently, the small risks are where the biggest effects are. Those events that are now commonly called black swans after a book by a guy called Nassim Taleb, who wrote a book by that name, The Black Swan, and also a book called Antifragility, which talks precisely about the effect of small risks on projects, on culture, and society. So that's one event, is pretending that a small risk is a zero risk. And when, how does that look practically? You see things like the Deepwater Horizon, which was in a way a perfect storm of a number of management errors, most of which were related to management hubris and not paying attention to, to risks. But it was also uh, the tendency at British Petroleum and many companies is to treat small risks as zero risks. And there's a name for this. It's called the zero risk bias. So anyway, that's one thing. The second thing is a sampling risk. So we draw inferences from small samples. So that's uh, a statistical problem is we assume when we have two or three observations that we can draw a conclusion about the way the universe looks. And it's not the case. And then the third is confirmation bias. When we have a vested interest in thinking something's working, we look for evidence that it's working. And that is one of the most systematic, if you want, cognitive errors in human beings, is that we like to believe that we're right and we look for evidence that justifies our point of view. In a sense, we don't observe the world and then change our beliefs. We believe something about the world and we change our observations or what we observe or what we see. So that's confirmation bias in action. So how's that for you? A little, a little tour of the whole world of psychology of risk in, 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 in five minutes there. <laughs> well, and I think it's really important. I'm just going to kind of footstop that uh, if, if you're at all interested, you know, if anyone who's listening to this, it's all interested in understanding just some of the basics of cognitive, uh, cognitive thought, you take, literally hit rewind and listen to that sec- section again, because every one of us is really at risk, and we use the word again, but really at risk of, of these cognitive biases creeping into into the way that we think through things. We may think that we have a very unbiased and a very very rational level level headed way of approaching issues that come up, but there isn't a situation where any one of us couldn't be affected by this. So it's extremely important to understand what these cognitive biases are, and then more importantly, to be able to have the ability in some kind of a way to be able to mitigate them. So I think it's, uh, I appreciate you un- unpacking that for us. So I'm going to ask uh, really kind of a, maybe a final question before we move into our take action today segment. And that's 
you've got just a wealth of knowledge in change management and, and obviously the cognitive psychology aspects of it. You've written a book, which uh, I think we haven't necessarily called out here, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to talk about that as well. But I want to ask you if there's, you know, what would be three change management or behavioral science books other than your own that you found useful and could recommend to our listeners? Well, I think the most important book is uh, written in 1996. It's called The Fifth Discipline or The Fifth Discipline Field Books, the most readable. In my mind, when it was written in 1996, it's the best book on change management. And here we are two decades later. And I think it's still the best book on change management. It's still, I don't really consider anybody who... Specialists or non-specialists need to familiarize themselves with the ideas in that book, I think. The book to which my own book is most often compared is a, uh, was published in about 2012. It's called Switch. And uh, the brothers who wrote it, the Heath brothers, had effectively the same ambitions as me, is to make what's new and exciting from the world of the human sciences available to the change world. And it's a fabulous book, and it's not written for specialists. It's written for managers. And in a way, it's off, my book is often compared to it. So I actually think their book is, is more readable. There are more stories, more anecdotes. Having said that, it's less filled. There's less information in it. They cover uh, considerably less ground than I do in my book. In fact, one criticism you could say of my book is I cover too much ground. And if I can have two, the book on the book on cognitive biases is called Thinking Fast and Slow by Nobel Prize winner Dan Kahneman. And it's a chunkyish read at 500 pages, but intensely readable. Again, for the senior leader and for the you know, thoughtful middle manager, I would say that's an essential read. And then finally, if I can have a fourth, is The Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck, professor at Stanford University. And she's also excellent. And what I tried to do in my book, if I may make a, a brief pitch for it, is I tried to summarize the best of everything that's been written in the human sciences in the last 25 years and make it accessible and make it useful to business people. So in a sense, uh, you know, I'm very pleased with the books. As someone once said to me, I could go out and read the 100 books which uh, you reference in the book, or I could just read your book. And that gives me the, the sort of the 10 paragraph summary of a 500 page book, which uh, I find very useful. So. The book does a lot of heavy lifting to try and take a lot of complex ideas and, and make them accessible to the guy who, you know, runs projects for a living. Absolutely. And I, and I appreciate you sharing the books. I mean, three of the four that you just called off, I've read. I've read your book, which, which I agree is a, is a great read for anyone who wants to maybe avoid having to read all the other books. <laughs> go, go and get Paul's book <laughs> yes. and read his <laughs> An encouragement to be lazy if I read one book rather than a hundred. Well, it's, it's an efficiency standpoint, as I think for engineers who are out there trying to be efficient with their time, this is the way to do it is you can bypass the other ones and just go read Paul's book. But I, I at, the, at this point, actually, I want to give you, Paul, an opportunity for you to, to kind of tell people where, where can they find out more about your work and the book here. You've also got this other book that's out there about rebooting your life, which kind of walks you through a strategy standpoint. So where, where can people learn more about what you're doing and where can they get their hands on this book of yours? Well, I'm about to rebrand my consulting firm with a focus on business agility, change agility, and focused on the technology sector and, and, and focused, you know, really on working with um, people who are either quants or technologists or, or even engineers. And uh, I, I don't do a lot of personal career and career coaching. Like you, it'll be more organizational change management. So I'm about to rebrand myself. You might ask the question, what are you going to call yourself? And I haven't decided yet. But um, for right now, people can find me at uh, www.paulgibbons.net. I also do a lot of speaking on the tour 
for my sins. And um, <laughs> that's a way, of, a way of looking me up as www.paulgibbons.net. You know, I'm looking forward to an interesting 2016. Um, a project I'm thinking a great deal about right now is a book on change agility, where I've already got some interviews set up at Microsoft and uh, at Tesla and SpaceX, which are two very interesting companies at Google and at uh, W.I. Gore. And so my next book is going to be more anecdotal based on, if you want, stories from the front lines of organizations that I think are getting it right uh, in change agility. So that's my 2016. Looking forward to it. That's awesome. Well, we'll be looking forward to that one coming out when uh, when you get that out there. So we'll have links to uh, to Paul's website and, uh, the, and the books in the show notes, as, long, as well as the other books that Paul mentioned for us. And so, Paul, I appreciate that. Are you willing to stick with us for the Take Action Today segment today? Absolutely. Okay, great. And we'll be back with all of you in just a couple minutes. Now it's time for our Take Action Today segment of the show. And both Paul and I are going to give you an item you can take action on to help increase the likelihood of success in your next change project. But before I do, I'd like to offer a word from today's episode sponsor, PPI. My listeners often ask me what exam prep materials, review courses, they should use in preparing for the FE, PE, or SE exam. Hands down, I recommend PPI. Now, I personally use PPI's materials to pass my exams, and I recently had a chance to demo their review courses. It's why I feel confident recommending PPI for those of you planning to take the next step in your career. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Use promo code COACH at ppitopass.com slash coach. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com slash coach, and use promo code COACH for a 20% discount. All right. I'm going to be super brief. So uh, item number one is get people involved early. Start talking to them about what you want to get done early. And don't assume that the model of figuring it out, what you want to do, and then hoping they'll come along afterwards is a functional model. The second is being specific about the new behaviors to support the change. Don't assume that people's behaviors will follow their hearts and minds. Don't assume you can change their hearts and minds. And don't assume that the behaviors will follow the hearts and minds. Be specific about the new behaviors that are going to support what you're trying to get done early on so that people know what excellent looks like and what you expect of them. And then finally, find a way to track those behaviors and hold people accountable for the behavioral changes that you wish. The ABCs of change management in 90 seconds. How is that? That's awesome. But one that I would add on this is with regards to changes, spend some time on the front end of any change project determining what your strategic communications plan is going to look like. And what do I mean by that? I mean, essentially, how are you going to transmit information over the life of a project in such a way that you're going to remain clear, consistent, and authentic? And these are the essential elements of really any communications, but essentially, especially with regards to a change management effort. So I'm going to keep you out of the uh, trouble of misinterpretation, but positions you as a straight shooter and someone who's reliable. So a steady hand on the yoke is going to be essential when any turbulence is going to be around. And as a leader, that responsibility essentially falls to you. And if you're not the leader, then look for opportunities to lead upward by helping your boss frame whatever change is, is coming at you. I mean, so from my perspective, change is continuous. So spend time today looking at your work portfolio and see where you can apply this idea and the other ones that Paul has shared with us today in this episode. And Paul, I really appreciate, again, you coming on the show today with me, talking with me about change management. I think it's an extremely important topic. 
We've got links to your website, your books here, and these other books that uh, that people can go out and and, uh, and tap into and get themselves spun up on this issue if it's if it's something that's new to them or to dive deeper into it if they've not. So thank you again for uh, for coming on the show today. My enormous pleasure. Thanks for thanks for organizing this. Fantastic being here. Absolutely, absolutely. And for everyone who's listening, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and your questions. You can always go to engineeringcareercoach.com and either search for this episode and leave a question in the comment section or visit the Ask Us tab on the website. We monitor all the comments and I can respond if you leave us one. Anthony and I look forward to those. So shoot what you got at us. Let us give us a chance to give you some, uh, some insight and some thoughts back towards you. And until the next time, please continue to engineer your own success. Thank you for listening to the Engineering Career Coach podcast. Be sure to visit engineeringcareercoach.com where you can find all past episodes and also download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also to help develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.